Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, educating, empowering, and connecting Christians to stand on God's Word and Truth. The man who won't stand up for his own principles is not really a man at all. Get involved by emailing comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. You can't handle the truth! Now, here's the host of Stand Up For The Truth. Mike LeMay. Cutting through the noise and fog of this world and pointing us to the eternal truth found in God's Word. Hello, friends. Mike LeMay and David Fiorazzo. Welcome to another edition of Stand Up for the Truth. We've got a very deep but important discussion today, and we'll open the show with prayer and get right to it. Lord God, thank you so much for giving us another day to love you, to serve you, to Hopefully do your will, Lord, and uh, we pray in Jesus' name that we would be among those who would be called faithful, that we would be obedient to your voice, to your word, and God, that we would abide in the vine, in Jesus, and that we would bear much fruit, uh, proving ourselves to be disciples. And Lord, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing, but thank you, Jesus, that we are not apart from you, that we have you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit in our lives, and thank you, Jesus, that you give us everything we need for life, for godliness, to face all the trials and the turmoil that this life often throws our way and that we go through. We thank you, God, that those trials develop perseverance and endurance if we would just consider it joy and trust you in all things. Direct our steps today and every day, Father, and uh, we just thank you that we can go to you at any time and ask for help. We ask, seek, and knock, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit as our guide, and we ask that you guide us into all truth this hour as we talk about important things, things that matter in terms of eternity, and may our lives do that as well. Make a difference, an impact for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our topic today, assumptions and how they can be dangerous. The dictionary defines an assumption as assuming something is true or taking a statement for granted. Now, when we believe something important is truth and anchor our life and entire belief system around it, only to find out the assumption was wrong, it changes the way we look at everything. And sadly, too often in public education and media, we are being led to assume certain false beliefs and philosophies are true, and this deception affects how we view God and life itself. Now, as born-again believers, we have the Word of God to anchor us in truth, but those around us are still under false assumptions, and they often wander aimlessly and hopelessly through life. Well, David Richardson, author of Transparent, How We See Through the Powerful Assumptions That Control You, joins us this morning to talk about three types of assumers and how their assumptions either lead them to truth or deception. David, welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth. Hey, thanks, Mike. I'm really grateful to be with you today. Thank you for taking the time, my friend. Well, David, we're going to spend some time today talking about the three types of assumers you discuss in your book. But before we do, I want you to discuss something important that you say in your book, that our assumptions can become so intertwined with our foundational beliefs that they seem inseparable. So why is that so dangerous? Well, the reason it's dangerous is that there are certain foundational beliefs that we have that we think we know, when in fact we really don't, because uh, if we can't distinguish between what we're assuming and what we're knowing, 
uh, and those two, the, the lines between those things get blurred, that's where we can really get off the rails. Uh, we can end up believing some things that we think we know when, in fact, uh, it is just built on an assumption. So let's get into these three types of assumers you talk about, uh, David, in your book. Uh, the type one assumers, now you say they believe the only true reality is the physical. Yes, yes. There's, uh, uh, it, it's really important to understand uh, that every person, it doesn't matter who you are, uh, is actually working off of uh, a basic assumption of some kind to explain everything. It's because we don't know everything. You know, if, if we did, we'd be God. But since we're not, uh, when we reach the edge of what we do know and what we don't know, we have to assume something that we don't know to be real and true. Because if we knew it, we wouldn't have to assume it. And so the, the first type of assumer assumes that the nature of everything is just physical. It's just physical only stuff. Uh, it's matter and energy, uh, things like minds and spirits. And that's not really real, or it's not important if, uh, if, it, if it exists at all. You know, they'll, they'll say that uh, uh, if I've got a mind, it's really the byproduct of biochemical reactions in my brain. So it's the biochemistry that's real, and the mind, uh, that's just a byproduct at best, and it may not be real at all. And now uh, that, that leads to some interesting conclusions if you start there. Uh, you're right. And the first, uh, 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 first thing we conclude by that basically is that when we're dead, we're dead. That's the end, right? Oh, yeah, uh, because what else is there? You know, if there is only physical stuff, well, then there is no life after life. It's just, you know, what, what I've got here may as well eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow. We're going to die and uh, you may as well enjoy yourself while you're here. So then the only true reality is the physical, meaning there is no spiritual. There is no afterlife. There is no God. So then. Um, what is man considered in that case? If there is no God, we obviously we're not created in the image of God if, in fact, God is does not exist. Sure. Well, you know, if you start off with the assumption that all there is is just physical stuff, well, then where did it come from? Uh, if that's what's here, where did it come from? Well, it's just the laws of nature. Somehow or another, the laws of physics sparked off the universe. If that's true, then how does it all work? Well, it's, if the laws of physics made it, then the laws of physics run it. And, and so the conclusion there, since I'm, you know, part of this world, uh, what am I? I'm just nothing more than a highly evolved animal. That's all I am, because that's the only thing that makes stuff and makes stuff go is some kind of biochemical evolutionary process. That's what you're left with if it's just a physical only universe. And isn't that really what, what Darwin, I'll say, kind of started and then Marx and Lenin ran with that man is really just a highly evolved animal. Yeah, he came up with, uh, you know, th that notion of evolution was around longer than Darwin, but the, th the thing that he came up with was the mechanism, uh, the, the whole uh, natural selection as some kind of thing that uh, actually takes that randomness and drives it in a, in a, in a particular direction. Uh, but yeah, it, the whole point there is if there is no God, then what is it that makes things go? What is it that makes stuff in the first place? Well, it has to be something physical, something in the physical universe. So the way you explain it is with just physical only stuff. It's laws of physics and, uh, and natural processes that make stuff and run stuff. And so, of course, a human being would be nothing more than a highly evolved animal. And, and uh, it's that same process that makes the complex human that also makes the complex dog, 
the complex tree, uh, the complex uh, uh, bacteria. Uh, all of those things are the product of the same process. Same process, just different products. And so there is no difference between a human being or anything else living in this, uh, in this universe. So, David, if this belief, this assumption that uh, the only true reality, reality is physical, where does morality come from, or does that not even enter the picture here, the, the concepts of good or evil? Well, if you think about uh, good and evil and, and the question, what is good? Well, uh, what is good is whatever I decide it is. Who else is there to do the deciding? You know, all there are, uh, are are human beings who have moral considerations. There's there's no God out there who uh, determines any of that. So if it's just human beings here to do the deciding, then whatever I decide or whatever we together as a group decide is good, then that's good. Mm. Uh, but that means that good and evil really are meaningless terms because my good can be somebody else's evil, and somebody else's evil could be my good. I, I mean, it it, uh, it goes uh, with just whatever I like is is what morality ultimately boils down to, if that is true. Uh, but that's not a livable way of conducting life. We want to say there's something that's evil for everybody, but this doesn't give us a basis to say it. Well, Nothing Dave- is inherently good or evil. If that's the case, the, these people assume that nothing is inherently good or evil, doesn't that necessarily lead to one of two outcomes, either chaos or a system of tyranny? Yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I've had this uh, discussion many times uh, wading into, uh, oh, Facebook and other places like that, you know, where I get into some discussions with uh, some of my friends who are not believers and, uh, you know, they'll make particular comments about something that Christians like. And uh, I've gotten to the point where I'm done defending uh, myself or other people. I'm, I'll just simply say, why do you care? And that gets them thinking for a minute. Well, why do I care? Well, because it's bad. <laughs> well, just because you say it's bad. You know, you want to have the freedom to say uh, this is good for me, but you don't want me to have the freedom to decide for myself what is good for me, you know, if those assumptions, of course, are true. And so when you go there, then what, do, what are you then? You're just a hypocrite. You want to have the freedom to decide for yourself what's good, but you don't want me to have the freedom to decide for myself what's good. Unless, of course, you're pushing your morality on me, and then what does that make you? Not a hypocrite. It makes you a tyrant. Uh, so which do you want? Do you want hypocrisy or tyranny? Now, you know, if you want to say something is bad for everybody or good for everybody, then there has to be a standard beyond humans that determines that. Because if we as humans decide that, then I'm my own standard or we are our own standard. And that differs from somebody else or some other group of people. But that doesn't say anything is inherently good or bad. You know, So if somebody wants to hijack airplanes and fly them into buildings, why is that a bad thing? Well, for them, doing uh, the hijacking, it was actually the highest good. They were taking down the great Satan. But for the people in the buildings, it probably wasn't so good. So which is it? Is it good or is it evil? There's no basis to say so because some people liked it and other people didn't. And, uh, and good and evil just become a matter of personal preference. So there is nothing that is inherently good or evil for anybody. But what's fascinating about that, David, is they will believe their 
created morality or their perception of good and evil. And they will try. You mentioned tyranny. They, they will try to force their beliefs or, or what they believe, which is baseless, on everybody else. And I think of the political system in uh, legislating morality or so-called legislating morality. Someone's morality will be legislated one way or another. Either it's going to be godless or either it's going to be a moral authority, something based on God or something that we can say, okay, this is why we want to legislate to protect life in the womb. But they don't have that belief. They just just make up their own morality, but yet they still want to force it on other people. Yeah. I mean, when you think about legislating something, you know, you you hear that old uh, that old saw where people say you can't legislate morality. And I think, really? Uh, What is legislating? You know, you're saying this is something we should do or shouldn't do. And so we universalize it for everybody by creating a law. You know, even if you think about a traffic ordinance, uh, you know, why do we have stoplights? Well, uh, to facilitate the orderly uh, movement of traffic back and forth so that we don't uh, injure people or destroy property. Well, then why is that important? Well, as soon as you ask that question, you're into a moral question. So even a traffic ordinance uh, is ultimately based on something moral. So it's really important that you understand every law, every ordinance is ultimately based on something uh, or someone's understanding of what good and evil is. And wouldn't it be uh, a really good thing to have people with good moral character making those decisions? Yeah, I think that would be a pretty good thing. Now, interesting, let's go to type two assumers. Now, they're just like almost the complete opposite of the type one that believe uh, the only reality is physical. They believe that all that really matters is the mental and spiritual. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah, it's interesting uh, that when I was figuring all of this out, you know, I understood pretty quickly that type one assumers are atheists, you know, because they don't believe in anything spiritual, you know, gods and demons and angels and all that kind of thing. You know, that's nonsensical to them. That's like believing in Easter bunnies, leprechauns and flying spaghetti monsters. Uh, And so I thought, well, yeah, that's where all the atheists are. And I discovered, oh, no, no, that's not the case at all. While type one assumers are atheists, actually most atheists are type two and they're of the mental variety. And as we get into discussing this a little further, you'll see exactly what I mean. But uh, uh, what a type two assumer is all about is uh, when you ask them, what's what's really real? What what uh, what's actually here? They think that the true nature of everything is something non-physical. So uh, there's the two varieties of that type two assumer. There's the mental ones and the spiritual ones. So the spiritual type two assumer will say, you know, this physical world that you think is real. No, 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 no. It's not really it's actually an expression of the divine. It's an illusion that it's, uh, 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 it's projected on your mind for your testing. And so uh, you're being tested as to whether you are going to be in, uh, uh, concerned with the, the cares and worries of this life or whether you're going to understand the true nature of things, that you'll be enlightened and understand that it's all spiritual, that we're all part of a grand world spirit, and that when we disconnect from this illusory existence and become one with the divine, that's when we'll uh, achieve enlightenment and, uh, and peace and harmony uh, in life. And there's lots of world religions that have some variety of that. Uh, I'm just curious uh, how 
that kind of person that, that has that kind of belief would deal with, um, I don't know, physical pain? Um, physical, uh, for them, uh, physical pain would be uh, something that is... They're imagining? Uh, yeah, yeah, it would be it would be a phenomenon of the mind at the, uh, uh, at best. You know, it's uh, it's a pain of the spirit. It's a pain of the mind, uh, and and then uh, you decide whether you're going to accept it as real or whether you're going to use it as a means of gaining enlightenment into the true nature of things. Uh, the mental type two people would do that too. You, uh, you well, well, Scientologists do that sort of thing. Uh, new agers do that sort of thing, uh, but for uh, the uh, the other type of assumer, the mental type two assumer, that other sub variety, for them they're not particularly spiritual people. Uh, sometimes they will describe themselves as I'm spiritual but not particularly religious, uh, or they'll just say No, I'm not interested in spiritual things at all. For them, they create their own reality with their mind, so they think that reality is perception. So my perception of reality becomes reality, uh, that, I, uh, that I shape and mold reality the way that I imagine it. Not necessarily the way that it is, but the way that I want it to be. So they have in their mind a picture of an ideal world that we can create and a society filled with ideal humans. So these are, uh, these are humanists. These are progressives, uh, socialists. They, they all fall into uh, this whole uh, idealistic way of thinking that we can fix the flaws and faults in humanity, that we can perfect people. It's much more than just improving the human condition. It's actually improving humans and making us better, creating a better world. And you hear that language all the time. Now, not everything you just mentioned now uh, would apply here, but some of what you've applied, I think, would it not apply to the early Gnostics that Paul addressed? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, the Gnostics uh, were saying, uh, you know, the, the physical stuff's bad, the spiritual stuff's good. So what are they saying? Uh, they're saying the thing that's really important, the thing that's really real is something spiritual. So they would be a spiritual type to assumer. You want to disconnect from the physical that is bad and isn't really real uh, and embrace uh, spiritual enlightenment. Uh, so, yeah, that... Uh, that's as old as the Gnostics. It, it really goes back even way further than that into Hinduism. That's been around for 5,000 years or more. Our guest this morning on Stand Up for the Truth, David Richardson. We're discussing his book, Transparent, How to See Through the Powerful Assumptions That Control You. When we come back with David, Avatars, The Matrix, and Star Wars. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to Mike LeMay. Our guest this morning, David Richardson. He is a, an apologist, and he's authored a book called Transparent, How to See Through the Powerful Assumptions That Control You. I'm about halfway through it, and I was telling David off air, it's a, it's a hard read, but a good read. I mean, you really have to slow down and read this book. Well, David, we covered the type 1 assumers that believe the only true reality is the physical, and now we're talking about the type 2 assumers that believe that all that really matters is the mental, spiritual. And you spent a little time in your book talking about movie examples where this is being exemplified. Uh, Avatar, The Matrix, and Star Wars. So talk about the assumptions in these movies and how that really fits into this uh, type 2 assumer. Oh, sure. Well, uh, uh, you know, when you uh, watch uh, these different movies and you're being entertained, you don't always uh, catch the fact that there is uh, a message that's being communicated. Uh, 
uh, communicated about what is real, what is good, who we are as humans, and uh, and how things in the world works, much less the problems that we face as humans. And I write all about that in my book, Transparent. Uh, the movies that you were mentioning, like, for instance, Avatar, as you're watching it, there's a scene in the movie, uh, probably about 30 minutes into it, just before the hero gets back into uh, the machine to reconnect with uh, his avatar. And uh, they're doing a quick debrief on some of the personalities that they meet uh, in this avatar world. And then he asks, who's this Awa? And the technician sitting there talking with him says, uh, Awa is everything. Uh, Awa is, uh, is their deity, their God. If you knew anything, of course you'd know that. Uh, and so the true nature of everything is something that is divine. Uh, that's Awa. In, uh, in Star Wars, you find this over and over again. Uh, the thing that's really real, the thing that uh, binds us and holds everything together is the force. Uh, it's the thing that uh, uh, binds every living thing together. Uh, likewise, uh, uh, in the Matrix, uh, we find something uh, that's related, uh, and that's more of a mental type to assume rather than a spiritual one, where there is what we think is real. It's, uh, it's something that is a, a simulation that's fed to our mind uh, versus, hey, if you take the red pill, you'll wake up from the dream and see what reality really is. Uh, but uh, with Avatar and Star Wars, those are spiritual type two assumers. But the interesting thing about those uh, two descriptions of deity uh, or, or of the spiritual force that's behind thing is what is a hallmark of type two assumers is anytime they talk spiritual language like that, they're always talking about a God or a spirit or a deity that is non-personal. So something that's not physical uh, uh, you know, because remember, physical only people are the type one guys, but the type two guys think it's non-physical. And and so, of course, spirits are non-physical things. But that non-physical spirit also is non-personal. So uh, even though you will see people using God language, yeah, I believe in God or I believe in a God or whatever, they're not meaning the God of the Bible at all. Uh, and the difference there is the God of the Bible is a person whom we can know versus just an impersonal force that uh, uh, is either the essence of things or is the, uh, the, the, the force behind everything that pushes and drives everything. With the Matrix, uh, the thing there is that the, there is a uh, reality that is impressed upon our mind and is something that uh, can be manipulated and is not... Uh, actual reality that's why you need the red pill so you can wake up from the simulation and i remember when the matrix came out in 1999 david i was a new believer and i remember there was this buzz in some churches about how the matrix was really a christian analogy and how we can learn from the matrix it it, it was quite a buzz for a while oh yeah <laughs> uh i was uh, i was studying in england at the time uh when that movie came out and i remember sitting in the university church in, in Oxford, hearing uh, uh, one of the uh, the pastors there giving that exact same sermon and drawing Christian allegories. No, it's not at all. Uh, in fact, it's really Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, it's Nietzsche's Ubermann. Uh, that's that's who Neo is. Uh, 
Neo's the Uberman, the overman, the one who, uh, who understands that once you kill God, then you're free to do whatever you want. Uh, and, and you become a Superman because you now uh, understand what real reality is and that you are the master of the universe. So this kind of falls in line with what we're talking about, the mental, spiritual, with the New Age movement, does it not? Yeah. God I mean, is a uh, cosmic consciousness and not a person? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, th- these It has a variety of different expressions, this type 2 spiritual way of assuming. Uh, but it's always the, uh, the notion that God is not something personal. It's a, 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 a world mind or a world spirit or a cosmic consciousness or a higher power. A lot of people talk about a higher power. Well, what's a higher power? Uh, that, that's something impersonal. You can't get to know a power, but you can get to know a person. And so all of these things are clues as to what kind of assumptions are really operating in the background. You know, David, I, I look a lot at, uh, a lot of this, and I, I tend to um, kind of classify it somewhat in the area of humanism, uh, where we can evolve toward conformity with the ideal. So man on his, good, on his own is basically good. We're capable of making ourselves better. And boy, we can clean up all of this pollution and poverty and, and economic distress in the world. It, it really deifies man, does it not, instead of God? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is a, a, a more mental type two way of thinking of the world. You have a picture in your mind of an ideal human, an ideal society filled with these ideal humans. And while we see the flaws and faults in humanity, we see how to fix it. So with our enlightened guidance and collective effort, you know, if we all work together, then we can build a better world. Uh, and th- that is based off of an assumption that can't be proved and is accepted to be real and true on faith. You know, think about it for a minute. There's people uh, who describe themselves uh, as liberals, as progressives, uh, or socialists, communists. There's, there's lots of different varieties of uh, this humanist uh, philosophy. But when you think about it for a minute, when a person describes themselves as a progressive, it implies something, something really important. It, it implies progress towards something. Uh, otherwise, how do you know that you're making progress? You know, they say, we don't want to go back to that. We want to move forward. Well, how do you know whether you're moving back or moving forward unless you have a reference point, unless you have a goal in mind? But that's the thing that's assumed and never stated. What's the goal? The goal is an ideal human, an ideal society filled with ideal humans that, that I'm improving and perfecting myself and the world around me. And, and, oh, we see how we can do it. If we would just all work together, we can build a better world. But when you think about it, in all of 7,000 years of recorded human history, has anyone ever done it? No. Well, actually, there was one, but he was God in the flesh, so that it didn't count. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh uh, progress towards a perfected human and a, uh, and, a, and a society filled with perfected humans, it's not possible. And so, you know, uh, it's this, it's not biochemical evolution that we're talking about. We're talking about either spiritual evolution, which is reincarnation and other uh, forms of uh, uh, new age and, and uh, Eastern mystical ways of understanding the world. So it's a, it's a spiritual evolution or it's a sociopolitical evolution. We are every day in every way getting better and better. We're making progress towards this ideal that they believe they can achieve. And so if the ideal is real, 
and it can be achieved, then it must be achieved. I mean, if we can do it, then we got to do it. Uh, and so that drives everybody. But the problem that comes up is what if there's people that won't go along? You know, if, uh, uh, if people don't want to conform to that ideal and, and the worst offenders uh, at that are, are Christians. They, they believe in, a, in another kingdom and, and have an allegiance to another kingdom. And they don't think that humans can be perfected. If they could, they wouldn't need a savior. Uh, and so those people are, are, are the worst of the worst. Uh, and there's two ways that you get people to conform to the ideal. There's, there's two indispensable tools for doing that because you either try to persuade people to conform. And the way you do that is with education uh, and the media and entertainment. That's where you're trying to get people to voluntarily conform to this ideal that uh, we understand is out there and that we can achieve. That's why you find so many progressives in education and in the media. Mm-hmm. But also, if people won't voluntarily conform, if they won't be persuaded, then they must be made to conform. If you won't do it on your own, then we got to make you because mm-hmm. if there's anybody that doesn't conform to the ideal, you're holding up everybody else. So either you got to do it voluntarily or we're going to make you. So coercing people to conform to the ideal is done by government and the courts. And it isn't any wonder that there are so many progressives in government and the courts. Mm -hmm. Those are the two indispensable tools of persuasion and coercion to get people to conform to the sociopolitical ideal that they think actually exists and can be achieved. And it's all fantasy. Surprise, surprise. It's about power and control. Yep. You will it's be not about made, good. Yeah, you will be made to care. For example, the environment. You will be made to care. You will you will recycle. You will you know count carbon credits or whatever. Um, the goal you mentioned, the goals of just an ideal human being, uh, progressing toward this, trying to achieve this. What about an ideal world? Doesn't this f- just completely fly in the face of common sense, reality, and, of course, creation. From that point, who are those who believe this? Who can give evidence that we are getting better and better rather than regressing and getting worse and worse and declining? If the 20th century is any indication of progress, please, let's not have any more of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, two world wars and... uh... (laughs) And, and how many uh, Marxist, communist, uh, socialist regimes that killed perhaps as many as 100 million people apart from those world wars? Mm. Uh, it was absolutely atrocious. And we have not seemed to gotten off that train yet. Uh, no, there is no examples in all of human history of people making themselves better. Uh, if, if it was possible, surely in 7,000 years, somebody would have done it. But there isn't anybody who has. Mm. David, I want to go back to those two tools you talked about. You persuade through education and media voluntarily. And if that doesn't work, you make people conform by force. I am of the belief that we are into phase two in our nation right now, that Christians are being badgered, bullied, intimidated, and forced to make a choice. Do you see it the same way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's exactly what idealists do. Let let me give you an interesting example of this. You know, when you watch the news and you uh, see 
uh, conversations come up about uh, the nation of Israel and the Palestinians and things like that. And the people that are on the news programs uh, commenting on it are usually radical humanists, the progressives, not particularly spiritual people at all, but they're always on the side of the radical Muslims, which seems really odd. So you've got these radical religionists on the one side, and then you have these radical secularists on the other side, but they seem to be on the same team. Why is that? Well, when you think about it for a minute, the radical Muslim is an idealist. What's the ideal for them? It's the caliphate. It's uh, it's a world society where we all live together under the rule of Islam, where everybody is submitted to Allah. Uh, it's not that you have to necessarily be a true believer. You just have to be submitted, i.e. conformed to the ideal. Hmm. So uh, if you are submitted and conformed to the ideal, even if you're not a true believer, you can live in the caliphate. What is the tool for doing the conforming? It's Sharia law. That's the purpose of Sharia. In fact, the reason that uh, terrorists use terrorism, they do it in countries where Islam is not in the majority. And, and, uh, and so they'll commit terrorist acts. And then people will say, well, why are they doing that to us? What, you know, why, what, what's making them so mad that they would do these crazy things? Maybe we ought not do that. And so what we end up doing is imposing Sharia upon ourselves in response to the terrorist actions. And, and so what Sharia does is it conforms you to the, uh, the, the ideal and it keeps you conformed. I mean, what happens to you once you submit to Islam and decide to leave it? Uh, yeah, it, it could cost you your life. So a Sharia is something that, that conforms you to the ideal and keeps you conformed to the ideal. But the interesting thing is not all Sharia is religious. Yeah, it's actually, you know, people today say, well, we would never allow that kind of thing, Sharia law, ha. to exist in the United States. See, see Dearborn, Alone, Michigan. We already do. We live under it yeah. now. Yeah. It's and, just not the way we recognize it. It's and, called political correctness. There you go. Political and, correctness is secular Sharia. And what it does is the same thing. It conforms you to the sociopolitical ideal that uh, the progressives envision, and it keeps you conformed. How do they do that? By bullying, by harassing by, uh, 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 you know, suing you by, you know, if, if they could get away with it, by beating you up uh, and kill you if they could get away with it. And you're seeing uh, uh, the level of violence to nonconformists ratcheting up in the society. It's because these guys are getting impatient because there's these people that are holding them up from this ideal society they think they can build. And it's all built on an assumption that isn't true. It's, it's, it's fantasy. It's not real. It, the fascinating thing to me, David, is the, you know, Mark, I believe it was Marx, could have been Lenin, who uh, coined the term useful idiots. And liberals really are useful idiots for radical Muslims because yes. the things that liberals stand for sexually, uh, uh, anti-life abortion, uh, gender dysphoria, all of these are met with severe punishment under Sharia. Sure. Well, and, uh, you know, the funny thing is, is, uh, that's that's Muslim uh, Sharia and political correctness is secular Sharia. Mm. It accomplishes the same purpose. That's why the, uh, the radical Muslims and the progressives are on the same team is because they're the same kind of assumer. They're idealists. They think that an ideal world can be achieved and that we can form, shape and mold society into that. Now, you know, they have uh, maybe an intramural 
uh, debate over which route to get to the ideal, but they both think that ideals are real and they can be achieved. And so both of them are going to act uh, in this way. First, they'll try to persuade. And when persuasion fails, then we go to coercion. And when coercion fails, violence. Mm. Uh, that's, that's the end game always when you're dealing with type two assumers. David Richardson, the book is transparent, how to see through the powerful assumptions that control you. We've, we've covered type one assumers, all things are physical. We've covered type two, all things are mental and spiritual. When we come back, type three assumers. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to Mike LeMay. Our final segment today with author David Richardson, the book Transparent. And in the three categories of assumers, we're on type three now, and it's under God and creation actually do exist. Where do you want to go from here, David? Well, this is uh, uh, the kind of assumptions that most people completely misunderstand and, uh, and, and confuse. The, the uh, first type of assumer is everything that's real and true is just something physical, non-physical stuff like minds and spirits. It's not important or it probably doesn't even exist. The second type of assumer is everything that's real and important about the world is something non-physical, something spiritual or mental. Uh, the physical stuff, that's the stuff that's not important or real. And so you would think, well, then isn't type two just kind of the combination of those two that they uh, uh, they think that uh, uh, physical stuff and non-physical stuff are uh, are both real? Yeah, that's true. Uh, but the interesting thing about that is that while a type three assumer understands that both physical and non-physical things are equally real, there's nothing divine about any of it. There's nothing divine about spirits. There's nothing divine about physical stuff. Uh, the thing that the physical and non-physical things have in common is that they are created things. There's created bodies, there's created minds, there's created spirits. The important thing is that they don't exist on their own. They were created. Created by whom? Well, created by a creator who's distinctly different from the creation. So in other words, God is not the universe and the universe is not God. There's a difference between the two. You can tell them apart. You, you catch what I mean by that? Yes, absolutely. You know, and one of the interesting things that when you, when you understand that God and creation exist, one of the things I found interesting in your book is God is holy, which means set apart, yet yes. he's personal. Yes. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting thing because a lot of people, when they hear the word holy, they, they think of something that is uh, supremely moral and good and all of that. And actually, the word holy doesn't mean that at all. It has something to do with being distinct, set apart, different from everything else. God said, I am a holy God, which means I'm different than all of the other gods. The other ones, those things aren't even real. I am the true God. I'm the real God. And so you can tell me apart from all the other ones. And he says to the nation of Israel, you be a holy nation, just as I am holy, you be holy. What that means is, I can, uh, can people tell you apart from all the other nations and what they do? Uh, is Israel distinctly different than everybody else? And when Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect, or be holy as I am holy, he's meaning, can people tell a difference between you and everybody else? Just because you wear that, that name Christian, does that really mean anything? Can you tell a person apart from, every, uh, from somebody who is not a Christian? 
it, does it uh, or does it make a difference at all? Well, then if it doesn't make any difference that you use that label, well, then that then you're not holy. Holy means set apart, distinct, different. And so when you have two realities that exist in, in relationship to, uh, to each other, where God is not the universe and the universe is not God, then you have a holy God. He's different from, set apart from, uh, distinctly different than the thing that he created. And so uh, not only is he different, but he's also a person. He's not just some force out there. He is a person who we can get to know, and we are made in his image. And uh, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Yeah, we've got about 10 minutes, and I just want you to expound on uh, just a little bit uh, that God exists beyond time, space, matter, and energy. Okay. Well, when you think about time, space, matter, energy, uh, those kinds of things, those are all created things. You know, the, the analogy I like to use is, uh, is a coffee cup. Uh, th- this is one of my favorite ways of explaining it. So if you imagine you're you know, driving down the road and you got your coffee cup in the, in the car uh, cup holder or you're sitting there at the table listening and you got a cup of coffee there, you know, think about what's that cup. It's a container that holds stuff. You know, you can put coffee in it, milk, juice. Uh, you can put candy. You can put whatever can go in the cup. That thing is a, uh, is a three-dimensional object, actually a four-dimensional object. It uh, occupies space and time. And it holds stuff. The universe, by exam or by analogy, is the same thing. It's a really big, four-dimensional space-time object that holds stuff. It's made of, of three dimensions of space. It moves through time, and it holds matter and energy, minds and spirits. All of those things are contained in this big container. But that container and everything is in it is not God. The uh, the cup is not God's home. He doesn't live here. Uh, because if he did, if he, if he lived in the cup, then he'd be bound by space and time. And if he lived in the cup, he'd be made up of matter and energy. Uh, but then you have a problem. God would have had to make himself when he made the universe, and that's nonsensical. That's the same problem the atheist has. You know, sorry, Mr. Mormon, God doesn't have a body. Because if he did, then he would have made himself when he made the universe. So God exists beyond space and time. And what does the Bible describe him as? As an uh, as everlasting spirit, he everlasting meaning meaning beyond time, and a spirit is not something that is bound by space and time. So God is everlasting spirit who exists distinctly apart from time, space, matter, and energy because He made all of those things, and He is not the things that He made. So there's there's a difference between the two. Definitely, you know, scientists uh, and many of them are are evolutionists. Many of them are atheists. They will continually uh, they they should be bound by the laws of the universe, natural laws. Uh, and you make a great point here. God runs creation with natural laws that reflect His character. So why can't atheist scientists see God's character in those laws? Well, you know that that's a, an interesting thing about assumptions. You know because uh, Type one, type two, and type three, uh, what what the, the core assumption is that they're assuming is uh, nothing that they uh, question, because if you questioned it, it blows up the whole system. So you can't question that core assumption. You can't prove it, and you accept it to be real and true on faith, because how else can you make an assumption? I don't know that it's true. I trust that it's true. And so when you think about the orderly, regular, repeatable, lawful nature of the universe, that's absolutely crucial to science. If the universe doesn't behave that way, the scientific method doesn't work. 
Neither does mathematics. Uh, so the universe has to behave in a lawful, repeatable way. Where does that come from? Well, you can say that it's just the laws of physics. And so the laws of physics make it, the laws of physics run it. That's what a type one assumer says. The problem with that is, if that's true, wouldn't the laws have to exist prior to the universe in order to make it? The problem with that is that the laws are tied to the universe. If there's no mass, there's no gravity. If there's no energy, there's no conservation of energy. So which comes first? The laws of the universe. Uh, it's, it's an impossible conundrum to solve. In fact, that's what Stephen Hawking wrote his book, A Brief History of Time, that he was trying to solve that problem. 20 years after the fact, did people still talk about that book? No. Why? Interesting solution, but it doesn't describe the real world. That's why nobody talks about it, because if it did describe the real world, we'd still be talking about it. But in fact, the lawful, repeatable, predictable nature of the universe comes from the fact that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. And so his forever lawful, faithful behavior is reflected in the things that, he's, that he made, just like the character of an architect is reflected in the building or the character of an artist is reflected in the painting or the character of the engineer is reflected in the airframe design that he creates. Uh, there's something about uh, the characters or the uh, creator's nature in the thing that he or she creates. And so God's character is unchanging. That's why the universe behaves that way. And it's interesting. It was the, exactly that way of thinking that gave rise to the scientific method in the first place. Hmm. It only came from one place historically, and that is from Western Christian culture. Those kinds of people thought very differently than Chinese people, than Muslim people, than people from Greece or Mesoamerica. Uh, entirely different assumptions. You know, if you're a type two assumer and you think that the universe uh, or the physical world is not important or may not exist at all, then what is the motivation to study it? Why would you want to do that? You'd get away from it, not uh, not pursue it. That's one of the reasons why science never developed in those cultures, because they are operating from the wrong kind of assumptions. The only place it came from is Western Christian thinking. It's because it's that type three way of understanding the world, that there's a creator and a creation. And that relationship between the two gives us the understanding about how everything works. And it's much more reasonable than just random interactions of matter and energy that produces complex organization and complex organisms. Well, that's an inherently chaotic process. How do you get anything orderly, repeatable, and predictable out of that? You can't. So science doesn't work there either. Perfect transition here. You use the word um, relationship, and one of the points that is under the type three assumers about God and creation is, and what a blessing for the Christian's for the Christian faith, God is intimately concerned and involved with his creation. Yes, uh, that, that, is, that is a crucial thing to understand. You know, uh, it's not that God is setting the coffee cup over there on a shelf and watching it go. He holds it in his hands mm -hmm. and he's looking at it uh, and he can see uh, edge to edge the whole thing beginning to end as a moment in time. And he has complete access to it at all times. But that is not him. There's a difference between the two. And there's a relationship between them. It's not a disconnection. It's an intimate involvement uh, in, in his creation. And that's the difficult thing for the other two kinds of assumers, because if it's true that there's a God who, is exi who exists apart from the universe and he's involved with it, well, we live in the universe. So if he's involved in the universe, then he must be involved with me. And a lot of people really don't want God to be involved 
in their lives. They want to be the masters of their own universe. They want to be the one who's in charge. They don't want God to be God. They want to be God. And, and uh, that's, that's not workable because it's not reality. I think uh, when you mentioned Stephen Hawking in this 20-year ver- uh, uh, journey, he was on to try to make sense of the universe. This world's most brilliant man came up with this conclusion, quote, <laughs> the universe came into existence because it had to. Now, that, that is just illogical, self-contradictory speak from supposedly the world's greatest scientist. Of course. Yeah, I, it's uh, I had to. Why? Uh, uh, w- without getting into the technical details of uh, uh, of what his argument is in the book, uh, it has to do with imaginary time and other crazy things that nobody wants to hear about anyway. That's just for intellectual geeks like me. <laughs> uh, but um, uh, really what he's trying to do is explain how a universe comes into existence by just natural laws so that there is no God who's involved with it, and so he doesn't have anything to do with me. It's just... Uh, a means of trying to write God out of the equation so that we can live the lives that we want to live without any, uh, without any interference from some kind of deity who wants to run my life. You know, and, and you really conclude this type three assumers um, uh, argument with this, and this is so important, and this is where the world gets it wrong. God is the beginning of knowledge. If we don't know God's nature and character, can we really know anything? Oh, no, of course not. I mean, think about it for a minute. If you're a type one assumer and you think that it's just physical only stuff, then where does knowledge come from? You know, your thoughts uh, that you have all organized into uh, categories of thought and, and knowledge. Where does that come from? Well, your thinking would be nothing more than biochemical reactions in your brain due to sensory stimuli. Somehow or another, your senses detected something. It created a biochemical reaction in your head and that produced a thought. Well, when you think about it that uh, for a minute, did you have any control over any of that? No, your senses can't refuse to stimulate your brain any more than a mirror can refuse to reflect something set in front of it. Uh, So if those kinds of assumptions are true and your thoughts are due to sensory stimuli and biochemical reactions in your brain, then you have no control over your own thoughts. Well, how do you get knowledge that way? You can't. But if you think about it uh, uh, the other way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the first official proverb in, in the book, Proverbs 1-7, uh, that God is the source of knowledge because he made everything. So he knows everything about everything because he's the one who made it. And so he has all the content of knowledge. And how do we get that knowledge? Well, we get it from him, uh, from our rational processes and our five senses, as well as our spiritual communion with them. But when you think about it for a minute, did you go down to the brain store and buy one? Or go down to the eye store and get a pair. No, we didn't acquire that apparatus by which we acquire knowledge. Where did that come from? It came from God. So the knowledge comes from God, and the apparatus by which we acquire that knowledge from him comes from God. So isn't it any wonder that the first proverb in the book is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It begins with him. And, uh, and since he is a, a person with a mind, and he created us in his image, as persons with minds, then it makes much more sense that we can uh, acquire reliable knowledge that way than just simply biochemical reactions in your brain due to sensory stimuli over which you have no control. 
Mm. David, we've got about one minute left. Kind of tie this up and bring it home for us. I know that's easier said than done. <laughs> of course. Well, you know, all of this uh, uh, ultimately stems from a core assumption that every one of us makes because none of us are all knowing. So we all start with a core assumption of some kind. Every person is a person of faith, something we accept to be real and true that we don't question, can't prove, and we accept it on faith because how else can you make an assumption? All of it's in my book, uh, Transparent, How to See Through the Powerful Assumptions that Control You. My ministry is Assumptions Institute. It's assumptionsinstitute.org. And the book, Transparent, uh, can be found at thetransparentbook.com, thetransparentbook.com. There's an app that automates. uh, There's a tool that I have developed where you can uh, surface underlying assumptions. Uh, There's an app that's uh, available in the App Store, and there's links to it off the website. Uh, There's a lot of great stuff that we're developing. This is pioneering. Uh, powerful stuff that God's given us, and uh, we're excited to serve you and your audience. And I think bringing apologetics to the necessary level it must go to. David, thank you for your time. Look forward to talking to you next month, my friend. Awesome. Thanks so much. Uh, Appreciate it, Mike. God bless you. David Richardson, again, uh, the book, Transparent, How to See Through the Powerful Assumptions That Control You. When we come back, we wrap up today's show and talk about tomorrow. We're getting ready to wrap up today's show. Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. Now, here's Mike LeMay. Well, Thursday, we're joined by Julaine Appling of Wisconsin Family Action. You just heard her lovely voice here on Q90FM. We'll talk with Julaine about uh, what's going on in the pro-life movement, the pro-marriage movement in Madison. And then we're going to look at a couple of news stories. David and I are going to look at an article uh, by a Christian organization that claims the social justice movement is the greatest single threat to the gospel out there right now. And more contradiction from those tolerant radical liberals, the people that basically say we will tolerate anything as long as your views line up with our views. So we'll cover that also. And uh, a kind of a sad but funny one we're going to cover. The title is, He's Wearing the Youth Pastor's Salary, Celebrity Preachers Called Out for Wearing Expensive Watches. Ay, 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 ay. For David Fiorazzo, Mike LeMay, standing up for the truth. We'll join you tomorrow with Julaine Appling. Be bold, strong, and unashamed of the gospel, because the Lord your God is always with you.